Hello, and welcome to the Think Fast podcast. My name is Simon Smith, and I am your host. If you're new to the Think Fast podcast, FAST with two T's stands for Focused Advancement with Speed, Tenacity, and Transparency. Those are our cultural values at BenchSci, where we use machine learning to help scientists run more successful experiments with the goal of bringing new medicine to patients 50% faster by 2025. On today's episode, we turn our attention to a different aspect of our culture. When the pandemic hit Toronto in March 2020, BenchSci rapidly became a remote company. Since then, we've worked successfully remotely. Many team members have moved far from our home office in Toronto, and we've hired talented people around the world. In fact, we've been so successful remotely and have seen such demand for remote work from our team that we recently announced being remote first permanently. Overall, this has gone well, but being remote first has challenges, and these increase as people begin taking advantage of it to travel while working. To help understand and address these challenges, on today's episode, I speak with Brad Sweezum. Brad's an experienced designer and design operations consultant who has worked remotely since 2016 from more than 30 cities around the world. On this episode, I pick Brad's brain for insights into working remotely successfully, including while traveling the globe. Hi, Brad, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Simon. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I want to start off by introducing people a little bit to your work and exactly what it is that you do. So how would you describe your work, which I would think of as really experienced design? Yeah, yeah. So I think the, the best way into it is that I work to understand the people that use a product or a service, and then I design user interfaces to help them achieve those goals, uh, whatever their goals happen to be. In terms of what that means in practice, one side of my work is designing digital products and services, and the other is helping build design practices at an organizational level, because I've been doing this for a while in a few different contexts, and I have a perspective on what that could be and what that looks like. And you've worked with BenchSci, and what I didn't realize even when we worked together is that you have a life sciences background. That's what you studied in university, but I don't think you ever practiced the life sciences. You ended up in experience design. How did that yeah. happen? What was that transition? I wish I could say it was planned, but it really wasn't. <laughs> I'm very much an accidental designer. So when I was going to school, you're right. I was in the life sciences program and it was a split program. I think it was one of the last that was offered like this at the school that I went to where you could split your focus between human biology. So I studied a lot of physiology, anatomy, molecular bio. And then the other half was really just completely elective. So I think more than 50% of my coursework was not related to that topic area at all. So I ended up focusing a lot on media, religious studies, and, and literature, actually. So I read a lot of William Burroughs, a lot of Borges, and, and I was interested at that time in film quite a bit and emerging digital culture. This was at the point where um, sort of the world was waking up to the possibilities of the internet. And there was a lot of thinking about what that was going to mean. And I found that really fascinating. So I was immersed in all of this and, and I knew that I really liked making things. I didn't know where I wanted to go professionally. So for me, in terms of my, my conception of what the possibilities were at that time, I wanted to be a writer really mostly because that was 
the only language I had for the, the making of stuff at that time. And I came out of school and ended up landing a job as a medical writer in a company doing what was called multimedia design and production at that time. It was focused largely in the oncology space. So they had hired me because I could speak the language of the content and I was young enough to pick up the subject matter in terms of how to make digital things. It was a small company and I had the opportunity to get exposed to a lot of the emerging disciplines associated with making digital stuff. So I was writing, I was editing, I was helping to build programs in, in a system called Director at that time and then burning, mastering stuff and burning them onto CD-ROMs. I did some video production and audio production, but ultimately what I later ended up calling experience or I later came to understand as experience design was the part that was, I kept gravitating back to and that really stuck and that eventually became a career path for me. In retrospect, I can, I think that had a lot more to do with stuff that had no bearing on my formal education. It really was a natural extension of hobbies that I had mostly as an eldest child. So I was the oldest of five. And my job in that mix was often to make up the games and the rules for what, for the games that we were playing as kids. And I took a lot of joy in that. And I see a lot of echoes of that in my professional life. So that was my path to, to sort of getting started as an experienced designer. Yeah, we have some parallels there. I started out in journalism, so I started out writing and, and then began doing health-related content development. And that was really my in into interactive media, internet, digital, and all that. Also have five kids in my family, only I'm the middle child. So I imagine we have <laughs> very different personalities because of our, our, I wasn't so much making up the games. I was probably the one disrupting them. Yes. So uh, I, would have, I would have been the dungeon master and you would have been the guy breaking the <laughs> yeah, dungeon, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So one of the main reasons, as I had mentioned to you, why I wanted to, to talk today is because at Benchside, we are going remote first and for a lot of people, and as a number of companies are, and for a lot of people, that is a new way to work or a newer way to work. And I think you are, yeah. from the people that I know, anyway, you were a pioneer of this lifestyle. And as you were developing in your experience design career, you made a, a pivot a few years ago to adopt a remote work lifestyle. So can you talk about that transition, why you made it? how you made it, you know, what, what was appealing about it at a time when really not a lot of people were practicing that? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So for me, it really began a number of years before the pandemic. I, I started to start, decided to start my own business. And part of that was planning what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it. And I really wanted to take my time with that process in terms of considering what the possibilities were for me professionally because I wanted to configure a job that I wanted to do. And what that came down to was a lot of being honest about who I wasn't, what made me happy, what kind of things fit or didn't fit for me, and ultimately what I wanted my life to look like in, in roughly a five to 10 year period. Where, where I landed was that I wanted a lot of flexibility around a lot of different things. So around the types of clients I took on, the types of services I would offer, my own work intensity. And really as an afterthought at first, where I was working physically, I, that was really not where I started thinking. That was just a natural add-on to where I wanted to go. But I wasn't really thinking about physical location very much at all at first. But the more I thought about it, I really didn't feel like the office environment was a particularly productive space for me generally. For the type of work that I do, it's just not 
conducive to really getting into a flow state a lot of the time. And that for me is very much of a piece with the happiest moments that, that I've had professionally and certainly the type of work that I want to do. Ultimately, I wanted to build some more flexibility into my day. So I can chop my, so that I could chop my day up however I wanted. I could be where I wanted. I could work when I want. So if I was going to work a 10 hour day, it didn't have to be in one big block in a specific physical location. I could break that up into a number of sort of pieces of my day that I could I could configure as I wanted. So I landed on that and I just, it just felt like a fit. And from there, it was really a process of working that into the way that I would introduce myself to potential clients and collaborators. And so I had to explain the services. This is what I do. This is how I can help you. And I also want to be clear about the fact that I'm remote first at this point so that you're hearing that kind of in the first breath of dealing with me so that it doesn't surprise you later on. Because at first the intent was really just to be able to work from my home office but then I thought the more I did that and the more I got comfortable with that, I just thought it'd be nice to come work from a coffee shop. And then I, I did that for a while. And I thought, what would happen if I tried to do this from another country? At that time, I was talking with a collaborator of mine and we got really interested in this idea and I decided to give it a go. And once I did, it became an exercise of understanding what does that mean? What challenges need to be met? And for me, I decided to break it into a series of small experiments. So I started working from coffee shops to test the equipment that I had, made some adjustments based on the experiences that I had, you know, different carrying cases, different sort of setups for an external monitor and, and that sort of thing. And once I felt comfortable with it, I did a test run to visit my brother in Calgary to see if anything really broke. If I literally just like picked the whole thing up and just moved somewhere for a week and learned a few things from that. And, and then I took the jump and did a week-long trip to Mexico City to see how, how that worked and uh, worked out a few things that were specific to international travel. And after that sort of series of experiments, I really felt like I had a strong foundation for not just working remotely from home, but also traveling while working and being able to work anywhere that I wanted. So I, I think your original question is a long-winded answer. The why was really about being interested in exploring a lot of different ways to configure work and, and location was one of them and how was really just like a series of small incremental experiments. And what year was that when you first went remote? Uh, I think it was 2016, 2017. And, and there weren't a lot of people that I was aware of that were doing it at that time. There was certainly a community that I was unaware of that was doing it because I was by far not the first person to be doing this. And in fact, the more I traveled, the more I was running into sort of like big bands of people that were already doing this kind of work. Mm -hmm. But it was, yeah, it was around 2016, 2017. Do you know off the top of your head how many different cities you've worked in remotely to date, or maybe how much of your time has been spent working remotely in sure. different cities? I want to say that it's roughly somewhere between 30 to 35 different cities at this point. And I, I had a rough time box for the number of months per year that I wanted to be spending traveling. So that was usually, I, I would cap it at four months a year. And so, mm -hmm. so I was, I was doing somewhere between three and four months a year over the, that period of time until the pandemic. I want to get into some of the best and maybe worst cities you've been to, <laughs> but before I go there, I'm curious to hear what some of your early misconceptions were and maybe what some of the surprising things or challenges that you faced. Cause I'm sure you went into this with this one idea and you're like, all right, this is my idea. And you bring the equipment, you have your plan. And then as we all know, no plan really stands the test of reality. So how did that all play out? Yeah. I think when it comes to misconceptions, um, I really think the, the first big misconception that I had was actually 
almost the opposite direction. I thought it was going to be a lot more difficult than it actually ended up being, hmm. Especially, uh, specifically when it come, came to logistical planning. What I was really surprised to find when I started doing it, doing it was how easy travel and by extension remote work had become due to all the digital products and services that either directly support travel or make the experience of being in a new city a heck of a lot easier. In comparing it to travel experiences that I had when I was coming out of school, that was the, the day of guide, like people literally didn't have phones at that point, not, not to date myself too badly, but people did not own personal mobile devices. And so your way of getting around would be based on guidebooks and word of mouth and just like buying a map when you arrived in a city and figuring things out. Um, and there is a massive jump in the ease of travel just based on the amount of knowledge that's available to you and the services that allow you to do things like summon taxi cabs and inspect which restaurants are good and get the, the thoughts of a million people that have been to those restaurants. And never mind the fact that, as I mentioned, that there was already this large group of people already doing it. They weren't necessarily well known or well organized or, or really self-marketing the fact that they were doing it, but there was a lot of people doing this. And that in and of itself had created like the basic infrastructure to make it much easier to travel while working. So specifically things like a co-working spaces existing basically in every city of the world at that point that were really catering in, in some places to people that were doing remote work. So that was massively surprising to me. Like I was expecting, like I'm going to land on the ground and it's going to be this like struggle on some level to do basic things, which is what I was hungry for. But then realizing it's, hey, it's like this is covered for me and I can relax into this a little bit it was, it was a really nice surprise. Outside of that, I think the, the big misconception that I found, not necessarily of my own, but that I find that I dealt with and that I still do deal with is really about what people think of when they hear that you're working from other places. They tend to come from people that are either considering it or curious about my experiences. And certainly from my clients, I found they often tend to think it's somehow like a vacation. And it really isn't like it, it reality is you're adding additional layers of complexity on top of the baseline execution of your professional life. So what I mean by that is like when I'm working remotely, there's obvious up upsides, but the work week is still a work week. And oftentimes, depending on what I'm doing or, or the type of work that I'm doing, I'll come back from working remotely and I'll get questions about, Hey, what did you do? What did you see? What were your experiences? And if it was a particularly heavy period of work for me, my answers are seriously underwhelming. Like people <laughs> that I'm talking to are like, what do you mean? And I have to explain really the end benefit was really just not about these big things that are touristy and seeing the big sites at times. It's more just about the fact that, yeah, I was working really hard, but then I got to go to eat in a restaurant surrounded by a culture that I'd never experienced before. Um, so I find that's often a, a common misconception that somehow there's this feeling that this is like tourism. And it, it, for me, it, at least it, it really isn't. Mm -hmm. So then why do it? What are the benefits for you? And do any of those benefits, or do you think any of those benefits translate through to the work itself? Good question. I think for those of us that are lucky to travel or, or especially travel while working, you, you find out very quickly how stimulating it is to be in a new environment, like a new culture, new climate, new languages, and just constantly having your brain trying to decipher what's going on around you. It's like the, being in a heightened state of awareness. At least that's my experience of travel a lot of the time. And I think that's just a great thing personally. For me, that 
if there was nothing else that came of it, that would be enough. And so personally, that is deeply satisfying. I just think it's a great thing to be reminded of how small my own experience is, how many misconceptions and gaps I have in my knowledge of the world and, and really how rich and varied human culture is. And I think outside of being deeply humbling, I don't, I think that can't help but make you a better professionally, better professional and hopefully a better person in terms of it showing up directly. And let's say a design artifact. I, I hope so. Like, I hope the more that I look at things that are designed by different cultures and that somehow leaks into the work that I'm doing in some regard, and that there are influences that start showing up, but I think I'm probably too close to my own work to say. I'm looking right now at your background and it looks pretty eclectic. I imagine some of the things that I'm looking at are from different places. Yeah. Yeah. So they certainly are. So I think there's probably a little bit of yeah, there's certainly influences that have leaked in, but ultimately it's, I tend to not think of it as trying to evolve specifically my craft, but more just about becoming more aware of the world and the possibilities of it. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you, because this all sounds very appealing. I'm also sure there are challenges, of course, as you mentioned, <laughs> but have there been any things that have gone horribly wrong? Well, happily for me, nothing's um, gone horribly wrong. There's been a few unexpected moments and more than a few dicey Wi-Fi connections, <laughs> but that's about <laughs> as bad as it really got for me. I've been very lucky in that regard. I, I certainly have had yeah, a few experiences that where things could have gone very wrong, but I was, I was just lucky enough that things never went sideways to the fact that it, it, it posed a real sort of personal challenge or, or even a, a professional one for the, the relationships that I was trying to cultivate and grow with my, my clients. That's pretty amazing. If it's been over five years and you really haven't had knock on wood here, <laughs> anything go terribly wrong. Yeah. I also have to caveat that with the fact that I'm like a massive over-preparer, right? So okay. like before, before I go anywhere, like I've probably spent, I don't even want to estimate the number of hours researching like the ins and outs of that place and what different neighborhoods are like and what where you can go wrong and specifically around safety, either personal, physical safety, or the safety of my belongings, which are really the things that can go wrong when you're porting around all this equipment with you. But yeah, so far, I knock on word, nothing too bad. Great. I want to switch gears a little bit and bring your perspective to the world that we live in now. So you're already someone who's been traveling remotely and then the pandemic comes along and of course, stops you from being able to travel and has a massive impact on people's work in general. Yeah. So what was that like from your perspective to see how COVID changed and really ever, so many people started to live a very similar lifestyle to you, although minus the travel. What do you think about the way that COVID transformed work? Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think from my own perspective, it was interesting to watch people go through the cultural lessons of working remotely, which we haven't really dipped our toes into too much in, yet in this conversation. But at this point, the part of the workforce that's been working remotely through the pandemic is very familiar with the challenges of working remotely. So keeping some separation between work and personal life from working from home, the, the effects of low-grade isolation over an extended period of time, and potentially the cost of social skills and mental health that come along with that, as well as like the stresses of working from home. If you're if your home setup essentially is not is not essentially zero frictionless, right? Mm -hmm. if, if it's not frictionless. So that's been interesting to watch because at the time uh, that I was starting, I did a lot of reading from people that had done this already to get tips on how to, what to watch out for and watching like everyone, not, obviously not everyone, but everyone that I knew professionally go through it at the same time was pretty interesting. I think right now where things are sitting, I think is 
it's such an interesting moment in terms of where the future of work is headed, because I do feel like there is this world of possibilities in front of us that have not made themselves clear yet, but it's starting to. And you've mentioned some of the early companies that were going remote first and certainly Benchside is doing that and more and more companies are going that way. Other companies are fighting an internal culture war over mm-hmm. whether or not they're going to be doing it. There's lots of studies coming out that are essentially looking at the workforce and in terms of like their preferences and employers are starting to map that into potential competitive advantages for themselves in terms of the benefits and the costs and benefits of being a remote or having a, some sort of a hybrid work model. And I think that is really interesting. The fact that there is now this additional variable that companies have to play with and that there isn't yet a best practice for it. That essentially there, there is a series of thoughts and companies have to work out for themselves what makes sense for them. And it's going to be industry specific. Every industry is not the same. And I, I think I'm very curious to see where that goes. Mm-hmm. You have led trips for companies as well for, if I'm remembering correctly, for employees who wanted to have that remote experience. I believe there was one time when you were talking about taking some um, people yeah, to I, Mexico City. It wasn't necessarily on behalf of companies. It was actually just mm. people that were interested in trying it. So they were mm-hmm. essentially like people that I knew professionally that had expressed some level of interest in trying, but nece- weren't necessarily at the point where they had done all of the homework uh, in terms of understanding what they needed to do to get themselves ready for this. So I was able to give them a, like a quick, here's a 101 on do X, Y, and Z, and you're going to be pretty much okay. And then you can come and stay with me and I can handle all of the things that seem scary logistically. So I was starting to, right around the time the pandemic hit, that was where things were going for me. I was starting to organize essentially non-official, like loosely associated groups of people that were interested in this to, to come and try it together because there is an element of wanting to share that experience. And for some people, it is a bit of a jump, right? It, like they're curious, but the jump between thinking, oh, this is an interesting idea and let's go do this today is quite a big one. And so for the people that I was working with, I think it felt them, made them feel a little bit more safe in, mm-hmm. in, in that experience. And from that, what were some of the top recommendations that you had for people who were going to be experimenting with this remote lifestyle, either as digital nomads or just in general? Like you must have sure. now been giving a lo- given, given a lot of advice and seen what advice works, what advice doesn't work, who that advice works for, who it doesn't workforce. So if you were to make like a top five or a top 10 list of top things for people need to know to be successful working remotely or being digital nomads, what would that list look like? Sure. Like I'll, I'll split it up between working remotely in general and then digital nomadism for lack of a better term. Sure. Still not totally sure how I feel about the term digital nomad, but let's go with it. I think when it comes to working remotely, most of the people listening to this podcast are, are going to be very aware of some of the challenges associated with it. But um, I would say if you're thinking about doing this full time after it is possible to return to some semblance of quote unquote normal life, really be aware of what your in-office routine gave you. So the the shape of your life um, was a certain way and that that, there were benefits to that. And remote work does come at a cost. So once you pull apart that structure of uh, a working life, meaning the commute, having a place to go to work, coffees, lunches, whatever that meant for you or means to you. Uh, Remember that a lot of important things were being ambiently supplied to you. 
and you didn't have to work for it. So you didn't have to work to see new people or get exposed to opposing points of view. That, that was just there in your office or in your commute. You got thousands of steps every day, just moving to the office and back. That's gone. Depending on where you worked, you didn't have to worry about spending extra time building a professional network because it was there in your office. You had to show up, do your job, and that would essentially build a professional network for you through time. That's gone too. And I think there's an, a, a topic that's buried in that that I think is really interesting because there's also a point in career place that is really critical to the notion of remote working on an ongoing basis. I've talked to a lot of people that are more at the beginning of their professional journey. And that notion of not being able to build a network early on is really terrifying and potentially crippling to them professionally. So you really have to understand that you're losing all of that when you go remote first and that you have to do the homework and understand what you're losing. And when you work remotely, you have to put together a game plan to make sure you still have those things. So you have to start there, making sure that you rebuild the things that you're letting go of. And once you've got that in place, that for me is where things get more fun because all of a sudden you've got that in place. You've got a lot of levers you can suddenly have your hands on and, and you can start playing with working remotely. I configured my remote work in a way that was right for me. And I think with a lot of time and introspection, it's possible to live a really happy and fulfilled life while working remotely, but you have to do the homework or you might end up in a really unbalanced and potentially unhealthy place. Now, having said all of that, look, everybody's been living the pandemic. They, they know all of that. I, I hope they know all of that at this point, but I, you know, I, I thought I'd put it out there as my own sort of thoughts of uh, what it's like to work remotely when it comes to working and traveling or digital nomadism, there's a lot to say. So <laughs> I could probably talk about this for an entire day just in and of itself. So please rein me in if this goes way too far. <laughs> Why don't you get started and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> First and foremost, do your research, spend the time to find what works for you. So don't approach it as one size fits all. It really is something you can tinker with. So if you like to travel a little bit, you can do that. If you'd like to travel a lot, you can do that. Travel can be done in a lot of ways. So pick something that fits you and your lifestyle and don't necessarily try and go chasing some notion of something that works for somebody else. And so start there with something that actually is a fit for you. Importantly, after that, know the law. So know the legal and tax implications related to your travel plans. So for example, some countries have regulations around how long you can work there before you're required to pay tax in that country. You need to mm -hmm. be aware of that. You need to know as well the, the requirements of your own citizenship and your own jurisdiction. So in Ontario, where I live, you can be outside of Canada for a total of seven months in a 12-month period, and then you start risk losing residency, which is tied to your, your medical benefits. And in Newfoundland, I think it's longer. I think it's something like eight months. But point being, know what the rule is around your residency and the implications of being in another place for a period of time. And once you are sure that you understand all of the rules so that you can set up time boxes and locations and some sort of sense of what expenditure looks like. You can pick up, you can essentially pick something that's going to suit what you want, but also that you can feel safe within and you don't have to worry about the legalities of it. And oddly, you can pick up a lot of this information I found. I'm, I'm sure it's different now, but at the time when I was looking into this, I found the best source of information was by reading articles that were written at or for snowbirds. So people, <laughs> so Canadian citizens that were trying to live in Florida and they were wondering, how long can they live there? What are the ramifications and what are the financial implications of doing that? I would recommend actually doing a little, like a little tour of like top tips for snowbirds and that'll get you started 
on understanding some of the things you need to get your hands on and understand where the lines are. I think outside of that, I've said, I, I do recommend incremental experimentation over jumping into the deep end on travel. That might just be a personal thing for me, but buried in it is remembering that your work, it's really your work that makes travel possible. And keep in the back of your mind that a, a poorly executed trip while working is potentially an extinction level event with your employer or client. So if your internet connection is inadequate, if your team can't reach you, if you're in a mm -hmm. time zone that makes it really awkward, that's not a spot you want to be in. You really have to look at what you're doing during that period of time and make sure that it's going to stay stable. So small steps can play a huge role in keeping you safe in this regard. And they can also help build a lot of trust in the notion of work travel with your employer or client. And I think to round this out, I would really implore anyone considering traveling while working. And once they're past the getting off the ground stage to really consider the ethical implications of their travel. I think there's a lot of axes to, to explore in that regard, but primary among them for me at present you know, first would be being aware of COVID inequality. Odds are, if you're listening to this, you're probably a vaccinated knowledge worker and you're living in a place with a high level of vaccine availability. That's really not the case everywhere. And so please do your research on where you're going. Understand the current status of the pandemic there and the implication of your presence for people's health and well-being. This is a big source of debate within the community of people that work while traveling. And I, I come down on the side of not traveling until things are reach a certain level. And I, I just caution people to not skim past it, to really do the work to figure out what, what is going to feel right for them, as opposed to just jumping into travel right now. Mm -hmm. I think on a longer term basis, I would also urge people to consider their environmental footprint. A travel, especially air travel, generates a heck of a lot of pollution. And if more people start doing this, which I suspect is going to be the case, because it, for me, it was the natural knock-on to remote working. I think it will become a natural knock-on for many people that are embracing a remote work setup. If more people start doing it, I'm very concerned about carbon and mm -hmm. consequences uh, there. So as a baseline, please look into carbon offsets. And specifically, if you're looking for a starting place, read the David Suzuki Foundation's guide for purchasing carbon offsets. It'll give you a good grounding on, on offsets as well as breakdowns on different vendors that you can work with as an individual and recommendations on which vendors to work with. Um, so... Outside of environment, you know, I, th I think the third one is really just a big one. And it, it just comes from seeing lots of travelers that aren't necessarily work travelers, but just travelers of all kind about being respectful and aware of the culture you're visiting and being aware of your own privilege while you're there. Traveling while working is, it's an unbelievable level of privilege and be mindful of that and try to be a good human being uh, mm -hmm. during your travels. So covered a lot of ground there, but that's, those are yeah, that's, that was, uh, I was excellent. You actually anticipated some of the other questions I was going to ask. I do want to, within that, there's one thing that I would love to discuss a little bit further, or maybe get both takes on from you. Okay. So in regards to travel, I think everything you said uh, about vaccine inequality and availability and so on, absolutely something we need to be concerned about and um, try to promote greater vaccine access. At the same time, a lot of these places that people who work and travel go to are heavily reliant on tourism. And 
the longer they go without that source of income, the harder it is for the local economies. So when you're making your, it sounds like you've decided not to travel until there's a certain level of vaccination and COVID's under control in a more equal way around the world. But I have to imagine that the flip side of that is that a lot of these places that are heavily dependent on tourism and for their local economies are going to be suffering even longer. How did you balance out your decision in that regard? So good question. I have to admit, I don't have a good answer. I don't feel like I have the answer to this, Mm. but ultimately, so I started from a place of thinking that vaccine quality was very important and that, that especially as somebody that was going to be come into most places in the world as somebody that was also very wealthy and have access to a lot of things. I was just very aware that the number of people that would essentially be affected by my presence was quite large. And that the families of those people are, are largely going to have no access to, to things that could help save their lives, whether that's a vaccine or um, mm-hmm. healthcare. Um, so I, I personally didn't feel okay with it. And, I, and from there, I started um, inspecting the other side of the argument around the effect on local economies. Where I netted out on it was feeling like if I was that important, if I was that interested in supporting the local economy, I could make a donation to the two cities mm-hmm. I was interested in, charities there, and then maybe I'll, I'll visit next year or something like mm-hmm. that. I think if that's really top of mind for you, and that's, that is actually the argument that somebody is trying to make that as the justification for their travel, I think you can easily supplement local economies that don't work in ways that don't require your physical presence. I, mm-hmm. I tend to struggle with that as a rationale for travel in the sense that it feels more like a justification <laughs> rather than uh, a real reason. Fair, uh, um, fair and, a, and a good counterpoint. Yeah. And so I'm, I don't think I'm actually hundred percent correct on that because I, I do, I, I do think there are real problems with not supporting local economies in more robust ways in terms of paying for local bit, pay, putting money directly into local businesses, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And that's come into really stark relief because uh, just as a complete aside, one of the projects I've had during the pandemic has been trying to learn Spanish. And so I've been using an app as part of my learning, my learning journey. And this app is essentially describe it as LinkedIn or Tinder for language learners. Like it matches, like you, I'm trying to learn Spanish. I speak English. It matches me with people that speak Spanish and want to learn English. And it <laughs> matches up our relative fluency with those languages and, and pairs us up so that we can actually communicate. And so what you, what those conversations often turned into after you get past the hello, who are you is what does the pandemic look like where you are? That was like the natural flow of conversation. And that that became like my window into a lot of the cities I was interested in potentially visiting during the time that became the pandemic. And it was became really in talking to people that the effect that it was having on uh, especially small business owners in those communities was devastating. And so I, I, while I've got a justification or a set of rules in my mind that I feel works for me, I don't necessarily know that I've, I'm totally right about it, but I don't know if there is a really a great solution. Sure. And it's changing constantly. Yeah. I, uh, so I've, I've just got a couple questions that I'd love to close this out with. And the first one is what are your favorite places to work remotely where you really are looking forward to going back after the pandemic? I, I really, all of them, like, it sounds like a bit of a trite answer, but ultimately I, I think there is something that is deeply special about every place that I've visited. And I'd love to revisit all of them. And weirdly, the the thing that I find that I miss most right now, it's not necessarily the thought of cities. It's actually the 
the selection and planning process. I fell in mm-hmm. love with that at some point, just like all of the, my little algorithm for like how I'm going to pick a place and then what I'm, what I need to know about a place before I go. But having said all of that, I, I do have a really uh, special place in my heart for Mexico city. I think largely, largely because up until then I had real questions about whether or not I could pull this off. I, it felt very much like um, a pipe dream and Mexico city was really my first moment of, Oh, wow. I, I think I can actually do this. Like, I, I think I can really make this work. And then outside of that, outside of my personal experience of working there, I just, I just really love the beautiful chaos of that city and, and the rich history that sits there both for good and ill. In terms of, in terms of when, I don't know it right now. So I've, I have a short rubric in my head for what I think works for me and roughly what I've got in my head. And I'd, I'd love to hear from anybody about a better way of pulling this apart. But what I think works for me is the rules that we have for reopening here in Ontario make good sense. So what I'm looking for is roughly 60% of the populace has a first dose. And I'm watching a service called Our World in Data. I'm not sure if you, I'm sure you, so it's put out by the Global Change Data Lab in concert with University of Oxford. Um, I'm just watching what countries hit that metric as a first glance at like, where is travel roughly possible? But then from there, it becomes hyper-local. You have to, you, I feel like you really have to zoom into the, the city that you're going to because vaccine distribution is still so rough and jagged and it will continue to be so through time. Long story short, the second that those metrics get hit, you'll find me somewhere probably in Condesa in Mexico City eating a, a taco on the street. <laughs> So Mexico City is is one on the list. Do you have a couple more places where you would recommend someone who's never done work mm. travel to go? Like maybe two more places you would say these are great places because you can get great Wi-Fi, great weather, whatever the the key criteria yeah. might be for you. I, I would, if you don't mind, I'll answer it in a backwards fashion. So I think okay, the reality is that I think almost every city you go to is going to be okay for infrastructure. Like I have not. Of course, that's within my own sort of small experience of the world. But ultimately, when it comes to like good city for uh, remote work, it, it really is a personal decision. And there's a couple of things in there that I think people should pay really close attention to. And primary among them would be time zone. So I would say if you're going to do this and you're trying to figure out what like a good first jump looks like, I'd highly recommend picking something that is as close to your own time zone as possible. Because the burden, the the time zone disjoint places on both your initial getting off the ground for the first few days of getting things done while traveling or sorry, while working and your enjoyment of doing it are going to be massive. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that I like I've worked from locations in Asia and I'd be very reticent (laughs) to do that again. And the only time that I think I would do that again would be periods of time where I, I don't need to speak to anyone. Like mm-hmm. the, the second I need to start communicating with somebody and the time zone disjoint is that large, it, it is your, your life is not very great. If you're, <laughs> you're like, you're trying to work like a normal nine to five day. Cause the whole point is to, for me anyways, is to feel like you're part of the, the working rhythm of another city and to get insight into what its culture looks like from that regard. But then your meetings start at 11 o'clock at night and they, and they run till, you know, four o'clock in the morning. And so your day is just obliterated. So I would say, if you're looking for a good way to start, pick something that's closer in terms of time zone. It's just going to be a a heck of a lot of a softer landing uh, for you. And then after that, pay attention to your own 
likes. Like for me, I, I loved Mexico for a lot of different reasons. But for a lot of people, Mexico City has connotations of potentially being a dangerous place. That is certainly part of its footprint in the minds of a lot of the people that I would speak to. And so they'd be deeply uncomfortable with the notion of going to Mexico City just as a knee-jerk reaction. And while they're like, as a person, I want to talk them out of it and, and get them there. Ultimately, I don't know that trying to go somewhere that is going to make you uncomfortable at the get-go is, is a really great idea. Just start soft, start easy, make things easier on yourself because you're already going to be carrying a lot of things that, that are, are brand new to you when you're starting to work remotely. So yeah, that's where I'd start. If you put my feet to the fire and said, what would be like another really great place that I enjoyed tremendously? I think Copenhagen was, was tremendous. I don't know if it's just because it felt like the cultural distance from Canada was like small, but the, but at the same time, large in terms of history and, and, the, and the depth and richest, richness of culture and the food. My goodness, the food. Yeah. Makes, food is such a key part of travel, for sure. Food, oh, climate. Yeah. Food, definitely. Like I, I loved Eddie Wong's line on this, that like food is the easiest way to experience somebody else's culture. I really found that the more that I travel, mm-hmm. especially to places where there, I don't speak the language or the cultural gap is quite large, that food is the way in. It's definitely food is the way in. And, mm-hmm. and it's, um, yeah, it's certainly something that I look at uh, pretty closely when I'm picking destinations. Brad, I have just one more question sure. for you to wrap this up. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would have liked me to ask, or maybe that you get regularly asked? And then uh, you can feel free to answer that question. You don't, I don't know. I think the thing I didn't necessarily talk about so much that I think is interesting. And I don't know that it's really related to my own experience. So it's not like I have some sort of special insight into this is really just related to the conversation we're having about the future of work and Hmm. what, what that's going to look like going forward. I, I think there's so much that is really interesting buried in that conversation because ultimately um, I think one of the things that's really different going forward and, and maybe I just missed this in my answer is that I, I really think the big difference going forward is that individual workers, I think, are going to have a lot more power to shape the relationship that they want with their employer. So it's much more likely than not that jobs are more configurable and customizable in the future, specifically after the pandemic. And I think that leads to all kinds of interesting possibilities. I think off the top of my head, I think it's really interesting to going to be really interesting to see what role companies play in the social element of work life going forward. Because that notion of centrality of the company, certainly as a physical space, is being displaced in remote first companies. And with that comes a lot of the traditional cultural glues that kept companies together. And so I'm really curious to see how people will get their social needs met as they work remotely. Because that was certainly something that was top of mind for me when before, even before the pandemic hit, that was a lot of that group that we discussed earlier on forming up is that if you're just traveling constantly, like maybe you're lucky enough to be doing that with someone, maybe you're not, but it can become very, very lonely very quickly. And so regardless of whether or not remote first is here to stay, assuming that it is to some extent, I, I think people still have social needs that they need to fulfill and getting them fulfilled as they work, they work remotely is I think interesting, both in terms of the role of companies in that mix and the role of the individual workers in getting that fulfilled, because I think that responsibility becomes murky really quickly. So maybe that looks something like more common neighborhood co-working 
where people from like your neighborhood get together and work. They don't necessarily work for the same company, but you still mm-hmm. get some social needs met. It could possibly be something like, um, like semi-nomadic group set up within a company that actually maybe they do go to the office together or maybe they do even travel together, but they're congregating somewhere else outside of the office potentially. And I think that is an interesting and new thing. And I think it's from a company's perspective, I would guess that it's a bit of a scary moment. To be clear, I think remote first is a great strategy for companies that can accommodate, but it's going to come with challenges. And I think that's interesting. I'm also super fascinated in, in what I think are going to be really the biggest changes. And I think that's to industries that were built around the assumptions of the needs and rhythms of a workday. So everything from public transit to office coffee shops, to restaurants, to talk radio for the evening commute, dog walkers, Mm -hmm. all these things that were essentially built around the notion of people waking up, leaving their homes, going somewhere specific, being there, and then coming home at the end of the day. Those industries are going to experience some level of disruption if remote working sticks around. And I think some interesting things in the, in the mix there, but I have no answers. I just have questions. Those are good questions. There are things that we are, as we've gone remote first, definitely the cultural part has been something we've been paying a lot more attention to and experimenting with. And so I, I think that everything you said is true. And uh, a lot of the tips that you gave out today and some of your experiences will hopefully feed into how people at BenchSign and elsewhere are approaching uh, remote first life and designing a life that works for them, which is really the hope here uh, to learn as much as possible, do the introspection that you talked about, figure out what works for you, and then design a life around that, that brings you the greatest joy and also allows you to be effective and productive at work. I think everybody's asking some of these questions and now's the time to try to find some people who have more experience than us Uh, and learn from them. And thanks uh, for taking the time to share with me and listeners today, Brad. Yeah, I'm happy to share. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for the summary. I think you said it better than I did and much more succinctly. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Thanks for joining me for the Think Fast podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to get future episodes in your favorite podcast player. And if you like what you heard and think our remote first culture would be a good fit for you, learn more about us on our careers site at careers.benchside.com. We have lots of open roles throughout the company and around the world. Until next time, stay safe and think fast.